Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. This episode is brought to you by Stuart Title Guarantee Company, one of the largest title insurance companies in the world. Stuart Title provides title insurance and customized underwriting solutions to help mitigate risk and close even the most complex commercial real estate deals with peace of mind. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a familiar face the third time on. Probably fast forward through his history because he's already repeated it multiple times. And it probably needs little introduction anyway. A gentleman by the name of Jonathan Gitlin, now the president and CEO of Real Can Real Estate Investment Trust. Jonathan, you know, we've done your background extensively in the stories of how you kind of ended up at Rio Can and the, the persistence and strong recommendation for those listening that have not heard those stories. Go back, just type in Jonathan Gitlin in your podcast search and you'll find the previous episodes. Maybe Jonathan, just do a 30 seconds. Here's how I got here. So we can just skip to the fun part. Well, it's obviously luck, but... First of all, Adam, Aaron, thanks again for having me on. This is my third appearance, and I think I was musing with you earlier. I feel like uh, Dean Martin on the uh, chair at uh, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Just keep on coming back, and you guys keep on having me here for some reason. But it's always a good conversation. And I started off as a lawyer doing commercial real estate and really wanted to get into the business side of things. I was able to do that through, as you suggest, a lot of persistence just beating on the door and beating on the desk at RioCam was one of the places I was looking for and uh, ultimately got the offer to come in. We have been here for the last 16 years, had a number of roles during my time here. And I'm now, as you stated, president and CEO, very proud of that role. It's something I've always wanted to do and uh, really enjoy myself in so doing. And we've had you on at different stages of your career now being at the top. So again, I'll just keep plugging the old episodes for the clicks. Go back and you can hear Jonathan's story as I can't remember what your titles were, but slowly transitioning to what we all kind of knew and anticipated that you'd finally get to this role eventually. And you never know until you know though, right? So, yeah, fair uh, enough. When, when was it official? Like, When did you get both president and CEO titles? So I've been president for a couple of years, but I was given the CEO title on April 1st of this year. It was announced last year. So it was official on April 1st. And uh, It's funny, it's been a bit of a distorted transition because it's happened during COVID. So there's been absolutely no ceremony, which is actually suitable for my style. I didn't really need or want any, but it was sort of like I showed up for work on April 1st and it felt very much like, you know, March 31st. But I have this exceptional responsibility on my shoulders, which I'm thrilled about. And uh, ultimately, the big difference between March 31st and April 1st is that um, the buck really does stop here. And it, and it really is one of those terms that you've listened to for so many years and you dispatch it as, as a rhetoric that you don't need to pay attention to. But ultimately, when you are the final decision maker, uh, it's a huge but very exciting burden to have. Have you had a board meeting yet? I have. I have. We've had one board meeting and we've had committee meetings. We've had audit committee and things of that nature. And yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a different perspective when you're the CEO and they're asking you for input on behalf of management. But uh, who's the chairman? Well, who's the chairman? Oh, Ed Sunshine. Okay. So uh, he's very familiar with my role. He's very familiar with what Rio Can is doing because he was in the seat literally three months ago. But uh, yeah, it's been a neat transition for sure. And I have to give our board and Ed a lot of credit if they made it a very smooth transition. And it's not always easy taking on from the founder of a company. You know, I think to their credit, 
the board and Ed have been really responsible about it. And there was a nice sort of lead time in order to get accustomed to the role. And hopefully I've done a good job of absorbing it. Well, you talked about the board and Ed making it easy. The, the market's not made it easy. You know, you did step into the role, albeit in a company that obviously you've got a long track record and a very senior position with, but you did take over the helm in the middle of a, a bit of a storm. Can you comment on that experience that somebody, you know, hands you the reins right when uh, <laughs> the storm's brewing? Yeah, well, Adam, I think we probably spoke about this last time because I think I spoke to you about a year ago, which was really right in the middle of this storm. And, you know, I would say that operationally, being the chief operating officer, I was right in the middle of that storm when it erupted and have had to really navigate through it over the last year and a half. It was actually probably the best learnings that I could have asked for. Now, I think if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have been like probably about 10 pounds lighter and a lot more stressed than I am now. Um, (laughs) And that's because, you know, there were so many unknowns in that 18 month period. We really didn't know how a lot of our tenants were going to fare. We really didn't know how the markets would react. We didn't know how much rent we were going to collect. And I think that all of those things have been clarified substantially. And whenever you have clarity, it means that a lot of stress is alleviated. My stress, but more importantly, the stress of those who work at Rio Can and the stress of those who invest in Rio Can. And so I think the, you know, the last year and a half clarified a lot of things where we've given a good sense of which tenants are going to be strong, which tenants are going to be vulnerable, where our growth levers are. And you know, again, going back to the original principles of our strategy, which is let's take our existing sites and make them better, whether it's by enhancing the retail offering or building mixed use on them. That hasn't altered one bit throughout COVID. And I think I'm pretty proud of that because that's a long-term strategy. And we didn't want to inform our long-term strategy by virtue of some call them terminal conditions. You know, things are going to end. So, you know, it was a real test in, in discipline. It was a real test in leadership. And I'm proud of the way we've come out of it. As I said to Aaron briefly before the call, I mean, you never know if you're out of it or not. You know, this virus is pretty uh, sticky and pretty persistent. But I'm quite confident that the impacts have reached a trough and that we're going to get better and better as time goes on. But I am proud of the way we navigated through it. And I think it was a great testament to the team here, but also a testament to a lot of the people who have invested with us and stuck with us because, you know, we always said, be patient. And I think that patience will pay off. Well, you mentioned uh, our previous call with you, right? Uh, being in the thick of it, we had a really impassioned speech, rant, proclamation, whatever word you want to use about the market's perception of Rio Canada the Times. You're trading at discounted NAV at the time, as were all the REITs. I mean, that's retail was dead, right? The narrative at the time was retail's dead. No one's ever going to buy anything from a store ever again. You know, like it was a, a lot of fear mongering going on. <laughs> what do you think about the markets now in terms of their perception of uh, Rio Can? Well, it's trending in the right direction, Adam, but I would still say that there's ways to go. I mean, our view is that we are... We are trading at a discount to now. But again, I think the markets are intelligent. There's a lot of institutional investors that don't need to hear, nor do they want to hear, while Rio Camp's trading at a discount to now. I think there's still an emotive discovery now where they're looking for, well, exactly what NAV should be. And that's fortified by a lot of private transactions. And I think they're also in discovery mode in terms of like what an operating environment is in the normal course. And so I think over the next few quarters, we're going to show them both of those things. We've participated in a lot of transactions now that really do prove where values are. And it does show that there's a pretty hefty disconnect between 
private market valuations and public market valuations. But I think equally important, what we're showing them through consistently decent results is that the market's alive and well in terms of retail leasing and residential leasing. Our statistics will show, and we're about to release our our quarter-end results next week, that there's certainly a market that's alive and well out there and the tenants are performing reasonably well. And this is being reflected in their capability of paying rents and leasing new space. So, you know, again, I can rant as much as I want, but I do believe that there is a fairly sophisticated market out there and they are slowly and surely getting the picture that we are doing just fine, that NAV is actually substantiated and if anything, fairly conservative these days, because I will tell you, I think what's been recognized over the last little while is that retail, when compared to industrial or multi-res, is from a risk-weighted return perspective, a really good investment. And you're seeing a lot of institutional or privates actually getting back into retail and buying a lot of, particularly grocery anchor, but certainly a lot of open-air shopping centers now as a really good investment vehicle. And that's driving cap rates down, which again, like I say, substantiates that whole notion that we are trading below NAV. But over time, again, I get it. A lot of these investors want that to be proven. And I think when they see that there's consistent value in these properties we own, then our price will go up. But I also think prices, you know, it's a multiple of your FFO. And I think we'll be able to, to demonstrate over time that our funds from operation, our revenue will continue to go up because conditions are getting better. And to the point that Aaron raised, and sorry to ramble here, guys, but I think I tend to do it all the time. But Aaron raised that whole notion that, yeah, a year ago, there was this prevailing narrative that bricks and mortar retail was simply not relevant anymore. And yeah, I got on your podcast as I did in a number of other occasions, whether it was BNN or whether it was uh, speaking to a reporter from the Globe Mail, to say that that is absolutely unproven and it's overstated. Obviously, retail continues to evolve. It's always been an evolving asset class. And again, I think what's happening here is discovery. That word is so key in everything I say. It's the consumer discovering what they feel comfortable with, and it's the retailer discovering how they can get goods to people's homes in a really efficient way. And in both of those instances, the storefront became wholly relevant, and I think it continues to do so. So I'm very, I think we've got a great trajectory ahead of us. And that's not only based on our ability to take our shopping centers and do more with them and build multi-res and those sorts of cool things, but it's also just the fundamentals of retail in Canada. I think there's a lot of upside, particularly when they're well-located properties. To support you, you we recently interviewed Colin Johnson, the president of Altus, and and spent the majority of our time just talking about retail in the Canadian marketplace right now and consistently echoed what you're talking about. To the point, he's like, you know, People don't like buying pants over the internet. They just don't. Like, yeah, you're gonna have to go to a retail store to buy pants because you're gonna have to try a couple pairs on, and that's just the reality. And then one of the other things that we mentioned that was really interesting is, yeah, there are some where predominantly brick and mortar stores that are closing, but there's the inverse happening as well, where there are e-commerce distribution companies that only sold online, realizing you actually need some storefront locations to service those clients that want to touch and feel something. Yeah, and I think like you know. I always offer this to anyone who's willing to listen, and that is that really what bricks and mortar retail is, it's really just a distribution center, right? It's just a distribution center with a better facade and some signage out front because it's ultimately a vehicle by which retailers can deliver their goods in efficient ways to their consumers. And now there's just different ways of doing it. There's click and collect. 
There's buy online, pick up in store, those sorts of things that have become more and more prominent. But as I said earlier, Aaron, they all have one thing at their core. They rely on physical space. And particularly when it's well-located physical space, I think it's a very prominent feature. One thing, I'll, I'll just sort of finish this conversation off on the, the retail side, because I want to get to you about just you know where your portfolio looks like. I think that's going to be a good platform for the rest of our conversation. One of the things I thought was really curious that fulfillment centers, distribution centers cannot do that retail does very well is take back returns and process returns. And that's something that no industrial facility will ever manage. You got to have somebody standing behind a desk taking back that return and, and reversing the transaction. So like you said, it's evolving and it's constantly evolving. And I think, thank goodness, the narrative of you know retail and bricks and mortar is dead, it's gone. And I think everybody's now appreciating it's just part of the life cycle of real estate, right? Things are constantly changing. I'm going to, another teaser for those that are listening that haven't heard your episodes before, we had talked about in one of the previous episodes about your sort of pivot from almost exclusively retail, disposing of some of your secondary and tertiary market assets, and then focusing a bit on multifamily on both the development side and acquisition side. Where are you today? Like, What's the proportion of retail versus multifamily? Is there any industrial or any other asset classes in there? Uh, so it's, there's office, which makes up about 8% of our portfolio. But I'll first get to the other question about geographic diversification, primary markets for secondary markets. And we'd set an objective a few years ago to say that we wanted to get you know, over 90% in the major markets, the six major markets, and over 50% in the GTA. And we're well through those objectives at this point. And you know, I think one of the things we were discussing before this call, the question came up was, how did that help you during the pandemic? And the truth is that it was actually probably not very helpful in the pandemic, but that doesn't matter to me. The reason I say that is because we sold from an income perspective, very flat, well-tenanted shopping centers, you know, Walmarts as their anchor and, and uh, other necessity-based tenants like that in secondary markets. So the truth is they probably performed reasonably well throughout COVID. But the reason that we disposed of them is over the long term, they're more vulnerable. If there is, you know, a tenant leaves those properties, they're much harder to backfill. And ultimately they had a very limited growth profile. And that was the reason that we went through that process. And truthfully, we probably would have been better off operationally during COVID had we kept some of those just from a pure rent collection perspective. But like I said, it doesn't persuade us that that was the wrong move. In fact, I think over the next 10 to 20 years, which is my perspective, it's absolutely the right move. And then to the second part of your question, you know, about our mix of uh, multi-res, right now, from a multi-res perspective, it's still a fairly small component of our overall income because we've got a lot of projects underway right now but they've only just started being completed and, and we're only starting to get rent production out of them. So examples of that are East Central, which is uh, right across the street from our head office here at Young and Eggington. Uh, we've got a property out in Ottawa called Frontier, which is fully stabilized. And we've got uh, releasing up uh, Pivot, which is at Young and Shepherd. But then we've got a number of others that are actually just on the verge of completion. And those include properties of DuPont and Christie here in Toronto, Another three properties or buildings that we're building out in Ottawa, and then one in Calgary, which is actually, we partnered up with Boardwalk. And I'm proud to say that even throughout the midst of COVID, we're just about stabilized. And that was, you know, that was a big question mark for us because Calgary and COVID was not a good combination, but it turned out to be great. And I credit that to our great partners at Boardwalk for, for coming up with a great leasing strategy. So it's going to be more and more prominent in our overall income. But for now, it's still fairly minor. But we've got so many things in the pipeline that will make that percentage increase 
to something far more substantial over the next five years. Aaron and I got to interview Mark Rothschild of Canaccord a while ago, and we learned something that was you know, new to us, and that is that the market doesn't reflect value unless you have income coming from that property, essentially, that they don't care so much about the five-year pipeline of, of units built. And so you'd be the prime example of that, where you've got A-class sites that are all at some stage of development, and as you said, coming on stream now. Do you think that contributes to the market missing the mark in terms of you know, the value of the portfolio? I mean, listen, I, I think that you have to appreciate that the business model that we've undertaken is somewhat new to the REIT landscape, right? I mean, typically REITs have been vehicles that collect rent and distribute it to their unit holders. And I think quite rightly, we're evolving. I think we've had to evolve because the old business model doesn't necessarily work. So we've become a lot more dynamic and we've gotten into these types of developments and we've also gone into extracting as much value out of our existing land holdings as possible, which I think is the prudent thing for us as you know, stewards of our unit holders' money to do. And so I think the analyst community is quite rightly saying, okay, how does this all work? How does this work in the context of a REIT? How do we report on this? How do we give value for it? And I think they want to sort of say, well, the proof has got to be in the pudding. So we're going to continuously, through transactions, exhibit how much value there is in these air rights. We're going to exhibit that, you know, while we're building up these big towers, that they are going to produce income very soon. And you may not reflect it in our existing, your prognostications of our FFO, but perhaps you should in the multiple that we get accredited for, you know, like the FFO multiple that we're priced upon. Because I think there's so many awesome attributes that accompany these buildings that we're building. I mean, on the one hand, you're taking older, sort of less than ideal uses of land because retail only covers usually about 25% of some very valuable land holdings. It's transit-oriented. You're building these great mixed-use developments that marry great retail with great residential. You're adding to the supply-constrained environment that I think we really, that is so in need of new supply and you're creating a tremendous amount of net asset value by doing it. And so to me, it's like a very, it's a very critical thing that we're doing and it's the right thing that we're doing. But I also understand that it's a complex thing and it's hard for a lot of the analyst community to really kind of wrap it up in their model and say, this is exactly what it's worth. And I think over time, they'll get into a cadence and a better understanding of it. So when you interview Mark in a year from now, the hope is that he's going to say, okay, I've actually got a sort of a risk-weighted way of analyzing exactly how valuable the 17 million square feet of density Rio can has zone. I know how much that's worth now. I can give you a good sense. And the truth is, it's also up to us as issuers to figure out how to properly educate the good, the great analysts we have out there like Mark to say, well, Mark, here's exactly how we value those air rights. And here's how we've done it through this formula that makes a total amount of sense. And I think that will help as well. So I think it's just because we're in a state of flux and that's what I credit it to. But over time, there will be more and more recognition, Adam, of those very valuable errors. In the short term for you know investors like Aaron and I trying to park a little money somewhere, this opportunity if it's not being reflected because we're big believers in uh, residential development. So it could be an opportunity for us. In the pipeline you've got, is there anything other than multifamily or, or what's the, the breakdown of other asset classes that you'd be looking to construct new buildings? Yeah, I mean, we've got a fair amount that's just about to hit our, our balance sheet at the well, right? Where we've got a lot of office. We've got 1.1 million square feet of office that we share with Allied. And I think 
that's not a core business line for us. I mean, office is always a great use if you're building mixed use. It's sort of always a good component to it. But I don't think we'd go out tomorrow and look to redevelop a site as purely office unless we were doing it in partnership with Allied in you know, a site downtown that seems to make sense for both of us. So I think office is pretty much going to stay where it is on our sort of percentage. Residential is first something that we're very much focused on. <laughs> Residential is not all created equally. And what I mean by that is we focused in our discussion today so far, Adam, on multi-res rental. But we are also doing quite a bit of condo. And what we press released about a month ago is our first deal we did as condo, but we're actually, we changed the structure a little bit where we're a general partner and we're getting outside investors to come in as limited partners. And that to me is, you know, there's a number of reasons we did that, but we're not fashioned or set up to be pure condo developers. It doesn't work well within the remodel. We don't get necessarily enough credit for, I think, the gains that we get out of those condo developments, but we do for a consistent fee stream and a sustainable fee stream. And so we've kind of changed the narrative a little bit through the structure of those deals, where when we have a great condo opportunity, you know, RealCam will keep a meaningful piece of the investment and we'll be a limited partner, but we'll be the development manager. We will oversee everything from getting the thing entitled to getting it sold to third-party buyers. And we effectively shed a lot of the capital risk, if you will, to other third-party investors who I think we're very much aligned with them and they're going to do great throughout this. So that's a model that we're definitely focused on. And then outside of residential, I mean, really, you got to assess whether it's a real value creator or a distraction. And so we look at things like industrial. It's not our core competency. Why would we just dive headfirst into it? If we can't really manage it, we don't have the facilities to really manage it. I don't think it's something we're really going to grow or get into in any significant way. But then there are things that I think are beneficial to our existing retail sites. You know, like if we get into medical uses and things like that, it's actually a great co-tenant if we bring in medical uses to some of our existing shopping centers. So to me, that actually helps us and creates value. But really, I think our core pillars are going to be retail, residential, and some office for sure. I forgot at the very beginning to remind the listeners to stay tuned once we're done talking to Jonathan that Adam and I will digest the conversation and sort of what we call the after show. So stay tuned. When we leave, Jonathan, don't hang up. Don't turn it off. Adam and I are going to keep talking, which we like to do. It's nice not having a guest sometimes, Jonathan, because you can just hoard the mic and uh, don't have to worry about passing to somebody. You said you like to ramble. I do too. So that's good for me. We interviewed a gentleman named uh, Andrew Wallace who runs uh, real estate. He's head of real estate at National Bank. He was talking about how REITs were... It's kind of the same kind of conversation you're having. How REITs were you know, more of an RSP vehicle at times. And then they've kind of transitioned into more about sort of, he called it cash flow and asset growth. I want to take it back to something you said about sort of the condo side of residential. While I appreciate any residential unit is good, a good unit because it's providing supply to the market. But it seemed counterintuitive to me because, you know, again, it's cash flow and asset growth. You talked about the fee stream. So I guess there's some value there. But why not build apartments? Why not hold on to that cash flow long term? And you talked about a 10 and 20 sort of horizon, the way that you think about the business. Condo is kind of a short term, get in, get out, get in, get out. So what's the logic there? Yeah, so typically, so a couple of things. But typically, we have larger sites that get entitlements for hundreds of thousands of square feet of mixed use development. And to do only multi-res rental would potentially be an issue because there'd be too much absorption required to lease up all those units. 
And so to come up with a mix between condo and rental is actually optimal. So you can build it all at once. You deal with one as a sales process, you deal with the other as a lease-up process, and you don't have too much of one type of product. Secondly, I would say the condo provides a bit of a risk mitigate because you're effectively taking money off the table. You can use that money to supplement your development of multi-res rental because let's face it, multi-res rental is a very expensive endeavor and the initial returns are not hugely high. But when you have a condo return that you can use to offset the cost you put into that residential rental program, it actually makes it a far more affordable endeavor to build. And at the end of the day, like we, you know, our balance sheet is only so large and there's only so much we can spend in a year, but we've got all these great redevelopment sites that have huge amounts of value embedded in them. So we try to extract that value as best we can. And sometimes it will be condo, but our principal focus really is doing rental. But again, it's just, we've got too much density and too much potential upside to only do one and not the other. I remember being at a conference a handful of years ago when we were not in the current apartment building boom that we are now. You notice the market conditions do not support it the way it supports it now. Remember one of the panelists saying, well, if the land is free, you know, these things really work well, which is great for established entities who have a lot of land like yourself. So how profitable are these for you to put together on land that you were, I mean, you were using it in the sense, you know, largely these are parking lots, but it's not exactly a huge revenue generator for you. So how profitable are these for you, given that you have the, the quote unquote free land component ticked off? Yeah, so it's a bit of a misnomer because land is never free, right? Like we have a, you know, IFRS valuations on all of our properties. And so when we disclose what our returns are on any given development, we actually utilize values that while from a cash perspective, we're not paying out, we're still forgoing this value effectively. We're still taking a valuable retail asset and effectively getting rid of it. And so we treat it as though we are buying it for what our book value, for what our IFRS values are. So even though effectively it is free because we're not paying fresh money for it, there's still embedded value. So we are conservative in the way we disclose our returns. That being said, if you looked at it from a pure cash perspective, Adam, and you said, okay, well, what is if you don't apply any value to that land because either it's on a discrete portion of a parking lot in your existing retail center, so you're not really losing anything? Yeah, there's enhanced value. And I think that's part of our, our overall plan. That's why we're doing it. We have this really, really valuable transit-oriented major market land holding that I think to sit on our hands and just look at it, it would be a disservice to our unit holders. So I think what we are able to do is provide enhanced returns going forward by virtue of the fact that this land is existing in our portfolio and we can get it entitled and we now have the expertise to build it out and ultimately manage it better than the majority of people in Canada. So we ought to do it. I'm about five blocks from the Queensway at Islington Cineplex. And so a gigantic parking lot with a, with a couple of restaurants and a Scotiabank. So looking forward to seeing what you do there. That's a real selfish personal perspective. Let's go to partnership first, Jonathan. And then I think we're going to transition into affordability and just supply and talk about some other sort of corporate governance things that now as you're the, you know, as you said, those are the president CEO or the buck stops. So you mentioned Allied, you mentioned Boardwalk, but you guys are big believers in partnership. Maybe just talk through that logic and how that works and how you find partners and how often do you pull out the Rolodex, start looking for names to call, right? Yeah, well, the truth is, I mean, I think we like our existing partners and we really don't feel the need to expand that list of parties too broadly. But that being said, 
some deals or some developments are more suitable for certain types of entities and not for others. So we do have a fairly deep Rolodex that we can call upon to find new partners when we need them. And as I said, the new structure of condo deal that we're doing, we're effectively going out and finding a few LPs each time we do them. And that type of investment might be totally different than building an apartment building or building retail. So you got to have a fairly broad spectrum of partners that you can go to. But our perspective on partners has changed a bit, Aaron, in that when we started getting into mixed-use development, we were largely looking for partners who had expertise. We, at the time, you know, we were building up our Rio Can living team. We were building up our internal infrastructure so that we can develop really good projects ourselves. But we were, you know, it was fledgling, so it definitely took a bit of time. And so during that point, period of time, we definitely looked for partners who had the expertise that they could help us build a successful development. But over time, I'm grateful to say that we've built up a really excellent team. And I'd say that they're you know, best in class at both through the entitlement process, but also understanding what makes a successful building, what makes a successful multi-res or condo building. And so our need for expertise has dampened over time, but we still like partners because it's now more of a capital question. It's more about mitigating risk through getting a capital partner, gaining some fee income. And ultimately, that's the perspective or that's the lens we look through now when we seek out partners. It's not often the expertise we need. It's more just the capital that we're seeking. Yeah. Some of the projects that uh, you're working on are, are absolutely staggering numbers. So I can see why that strategy has some appeal. You've got development straight across the country in a number of cities that have pretty pronounced affordability issues in the cities that have that? Are you working on affordability initiatives or anything to you know, address that recurring theme that pops up straight across the country? Yeah. Listen, I think we're trying to be as responsible as we can while keeping our eye on the bottom line as well. I mean, we've just launched a project along with our partners, Context Developments out at Queen and Coxwell. It's called Q&A or Queen and Ashbridge where there's a significant affordability component. We're also partnering up with the Toronto Community Housing Commission and building them new housing on the site as well. So it's definitely top of mind for us. And I think the more and more projects we do, the more we will be including affordable components. And I think that might actually be imposed upon a lot of developers coming up because I think there's inclusionary zoning that I think a lot of cities, including Toronto, are taking very seriously. But ultimately, in getting to a deeper topic, what drives pricing up on residential? And, and I would say that you know, after years and years of exploring this and trying to figure out what the issue is, I think like it's now a pretty much a foregone conclusion that it's supply constraint. And what is constraining supply at this point? Well, I think there's a lot of, of willing developers who are out there saying, look, we want to build responsible, transit-oriented great developments that are going to really help uh, cities, but we're being hampered by process. We're being hampered by the various layers of governmental process that have been imposed upon a lot of developers. And, you know, the time it takes to develop a property from start to finish, I mean, the entitlement process, getting through the various elements or layers of bureaucracy to get something built, particularly in places like Toronto, it's mind-boggling. And So when you're faced with that, I mean, time is money. And then, of course, there's development charges that are just increasing day over day. It makes a lot of these projects not really as viable as they should otherwise be. And that's killing supply. 
And particularly in cases like for companies like RioCam, where we have really well-located transit-oriented properties on in these major markets, that's exactly where you want to build density. But there are so many hurdles to get there that it really does create an impediment for developers like us to build this very much needed supply. And then when you add to that, even like sort of federal government policies on, let's say, HST, where we as residential rental developers, we've got to pay the full freight of HST, whereas a condo developer doesn't. They pass it through to the ultimate buyer. You know, policy around those, I think it should be explored. I'm not suggesting that the government go ahead and change it this minute, but I really think it is something that should be explored because things like that will compel more development, which then creates more supply, which I think will inherently create a better and more affordable landscape out there. But just to impose it through, you know, only taking one measure and saying to all developers or landlords, you've got to either have rent controls in place or when you build, you've got to have a component that is going to be affordable. I think these are good policies and all, don't get me wrong, but I think they have to be supplemented and helped by the ability to build quicker and build bigger in some cases, particularly when you're on transit. And I think that will really be, to me, the impetus to get the affordability quotient under control. It's a really challenging conversation, right? Because, and I do this, I run a lot of sort of training sessions with our team. And you try to talk through the value of affordability and the need for affordability, but you mentioned it, you're still going to keep a focus on the bottom line at the end of the day. So you have to kind of tiptoe. Maybe if you can, just kind of talk through how that works internally from a culture perspective at Rio King. We all want to make sure that there's affordability for Canadians to be able to afford a home or rent a home, right? Like that's clearly something that's important to society. And maybe maybe talk about inclusionary zoning too and just kind of the, some of the forces we're, we're getting against it. I'm trying to pass you a bone here, but you know, be gentle, obviously, right? Yeah, so first of all, I think uh, these policies are going back for a second. I know I'm not answering your question here, but I think of some of like the really intelligent policies that have been put in place by government organizations. And I think about like CMHC, they had a program that they unveiled where they were using their own balance sheet to do construction loans to developers who were going to have a certain amount of affordable units and they were going to have a certain amount of accessibility for you know anyone who needs help getting into and out of places. And it was called the RCFI program, I believe. Right. Yep. I thought that was great policy. But unfortunately, I haven't really seen it utilized uh, as much as we would have hoped. But to me, like that's brilliant policy that helps the bottom line. It's kind of like a, a combination of government and private working together to come up with, I think, a necessary result to enhance supply. So I think like I applaud efforts like that, but I think the execution has just got to be a little more, a little more quicker. I think uh, CMHC is really, they are going to push this forward. It's just taken some time. So I think that's really great policy. But when it comes to inclusionary zoning, look, my views on it, I still don't know enough about it because I got to be honest with you, from what I've been told by Andrew Duncan, who's our chief investment officer, but has been paying close attention to the proposals for the city of Toronto, like I kind of think you need a PhD to understand how it's all going to work. And I don't know what the impacts of that will be on our development pipeline. What I will say is that it will make all land that has been zoned and therefore grandfathered a hell of a lot more valuable which benefits us on one hand, because we have a lot of that land holding. But on the other hand, it makes like sort of starting net new a little bit more prohibitive, right? Because if all of a sudden you're underwriting a property that gives you a 5% return, and that's based on getting market rents, and now all of a sudden, let's say 30% of those units have to be at, I don't know, 
60% of that rent that you're underwriting, ultimately, like it just, it means that you can't clear a hurdle. And listen, we want to be great corporate citizens and we want to do what we can to enhance supply. But on the other hand, I've got unit holders that I've got to answer to. And if we're getting really cruddy returns, it might not be the right way to allocate our capital. So it will, it will inform decisions we make on developments going forward. So I think the government policy, I think what they're doing is the right thing. Before they just sort of say, okay, inclusionary zoning across the board, I think they are consulting with a lot of developers to say, how does this change your perspective on development? What's it actually going to do to supply? And I would urge them to keep on having those important conversations because we all want to help out. We want to do the right thing. We want to bring in more and more units to help this, what I think is going to be an enhanced housing crisis, particularly once immigration kicks in again. But I, I don't think it's a one-way street. It's got to be kind of brought together along with some governmental policy that will help us develop things as well. So, and that's where I go back to that RTFI program, which I think is really good policy. It's just got to be executed swiftly. So I guess bottom line is inclusionary zoning, I can't comment on now because I don't know enough about it. But like I said, that on its own is not going to cure the supply issue. It's going to make it very hard to develop. Well, there's this, of course, the unintended consequences of any government action that can spring out of all of this. And it's a difficult and fine line to get. We're almost out of time here, Jonathan, but I want to talk about your vision going forward. I mean, it's almost interesting that at the time that you took over the company, it was a bit of a, a global reset that somebody had you know, shaken the snow globe over our lives. So you're kind of starting on a, but not the clean slate of the company, but it was a mid-transition, mid-pivot anyway. So you do have, I assume, a lot of free reign to really shape the company. And given that you are you know, just uh, very new into uh, this particular role, you've got a lot of time to, to implement it. So what are you looking at you know, for RioCan for the 5-10 year vision for the company? There's a lot there and, and we're going to unpack a lot more. We're, you know, we're planning an investor day later on in the year where we can really show what our five-year vision is. And so you know, without breaking in too much to a, uh, to a preview of that, I think it's really going along the same lines, which is taking our existing properties, making them better. And that's a very crude statement, but let me expand on it a little bit. Obviously, we've got a lot of very valuable land holdings. Some of it is suitable for retail, but the re- existing retail we have now can always use tweaks. I think we can, we've all figured out which tenants kind of work and are resilient and which don't. And I think it's up to us to find more and more of those tenants that really will form better parts, better components for the neighborhoods they exist, and really just create sustainable, unquestionable income going forward. So I think you're already seeing things like apparel, which, you know, they have their place, but certainly I think they need a lesser amount of prominence in our portfolio. And we've already started making that shift to have fewer apparel purveyors in our existing retail. That's just one example. There are many others. So I think we're going to make our existing retail better. And we've got to do that by also making sure that we are customer-centric. Who are our customers? Really, they're our tenants. And so we've just got to continue to be really reactive to the needs of our tenants. And what does that mean? It means ultimately creating a better physical plant. We've got great properties, but we've got to make them look great all the time. We've got to create better technological platforms that allow our tenants to operate better and more efficiently. So we're creating things like tenant portals that allow them to lodge any complaints or issues immediately and get them responded to immediately. And I think that's going to be a key component in what might differentiate us from the other landlords they have. We are customer first. We've got to really prove that. And then ultimately, we've got to diversify a little bit more. And that means that we've got to look 
to really continue that vision to getting into mixed-use properties. And listen, we've embarked on that. We've done a great job of, of, I think, pushing it forward. But it's something that we now have to really show a plan as to where we're going to be in the next five years in that regard. But it's definitely going to be a place of more prominence where we have quite a spectacular lineup of brand new major market mixed-use development properties that I think will really enhance our profile going forward and also make our cash flow really damn resilient. So this is a broad spectrum of strategy that I'm talking about, but it is generally speaking where we are going to be going. And then, of course, I would be remiss in not mentioning, you know, from a cultural perspective, we want to be leaders. We want to be what is considered the best place in Canada to work. And, um, you know, I think we've got a long way to go to get there, but I think that's definitely something that we plan on doing. And there's a lot behind that. But I think, you know, ESG is a critical thing. It's a critical component of our path forward. I think we've demonstrated that we are that we are very focused on it by virtue of the fact that we keep on getting a better and better third-party scorecard, if you will, through Gresby and other matrices like that. But I, I think ultimately that's got to be a key component of anyone's strategy going forward. But we are certainly regardless of what others are doing, very, very focused on making sure we are, are being great corporate citizens and, and really doing the right thing when it comes to those components. So I uh, hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And it answered my final question. Adam and I, we brown the text back and forth, trying to make sure that we don't jump on each other and keep the flow of the conversation going. We had just said last question on sustainability and ESG, and then we'll wrap. So you did it for us. Jonathan, sensitive to your time. We're a little bit over time. So why don't we just say thank you Really appreciate having you on. Looking forward to having you on again. Thanks for taking the time. Great conversation. Uh, reminder to our listeners, stay tuned. After show is coming up, so don't hit stop yet. Jonathan, really, again, a pleasure having you on. Aaron, Adam, always a pleasure. And as long as my seat is warm and I get to sit next to Ed McMahon, I'm always ready to come back to the tonight's show with you guys. So thanks a lot for your time and uh, best of luck. We'll see you next week then for the next recording. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> awesome. All right, take care. The CRE Podcast thanks Stuart Title for their sponsorship. For more information on how you can benefit from their suite of title insurance solutions, visit stuart.ca. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we digest the conversation we just had with a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Gitlin. Always a pleasure having that guy on. He's uh, certainly a smooth talker. I wanted to get him to, to go on about inclusionary zoning, and I was trying to set it up in a way that would aggravate him a little bit because he's very, he's very good at saying gently that you know things are frustrating him. You know what I mean? Like it's never overtly negative. It's just he's honest and transparent that this is something that frustrates him. I think I kind of butchered it, but he he grabbed onto it and he took it, and it made it very very transparent. Right? The, the reality is we just don't know how it's going to work, and it could have a very significant impact on land prices, those that exist already entitled and those that are not entitled that are now captured in whatever the sort of zoning legislature that comes through. It's a really, really interesting times right now as the city of Toronto anyway, contemplates this potential change to the zoning legislation. That is the issue, of course, is any blanket policies, any heavy-handed policies, they're not going to fit. You know, it's it's a double-edged sword. You know, blanket policy makes it very clear what developers need to do versus something that's a little more nuanced. But then nuanced nuanced zoning gets into the world of 
seven year delays before you can build and you know nobody really being really clear on what their property can do so it's yeah it really is tough i mean you know if you look at uh, montreal right now you know they they're i think year two of a of a pretty heavy head like policy and a lot of developers there are not too happy so yeah i don't know what the answer is i mean now the rest of developers or planners or anybody who's you know super educated on this topic but yeah it, it, it's tough real to solve and if anything if you said to me, you know, point to a city that's got it right, that just nailed affordability, I don't think I could name one globally that you know has got it. So I'm not sure there is one. I mean, we've asked people that have that kind of exposure to other other municipalities around the world, and never really. There's always bits and pieces of good policy, and even Jonathan mentioned this sort of the CMH CRCFI program that I think is still doing good work, but you need way more than that, right? Like we need lots and lots of policies. Let's just get into that for one minute because I don't know if everybody's familiar with the RCFI program. The traditional model for CMHC construction lending is that they insure a loan and then the lender provides their funds for it, which leads to a you know, not unlimited supply of money, but uh, very robust. In this case, the RCFI is a direct lending program from CMHC where they're providing their own funds. And so you look at their, you know, their annual allocation and you know it can be a very big number in terms of the funds available. But when you consider build costs in some of the cities that need more units the most, billions of dollars can get chewed up very quickly with only a handful of projects. And that's one limitation on the program is that it is not, not an endless sea of funds because building apartments is expensive. But that being said, it is designed to incentivize buildings with social benefit, and it has done that effectively in a several-year existence now. And there is lots of benefits. Long-term amortization, that affordability is a very, very low interest rate to kind of account for having to include affordable units. And I think it is getting a lot of traction. I think they are deploying that capital fairly quickly. So, I mean, I think ultimately, like to Jonathan's point, like there's something that, that makes sense, right? You know, it was interesting to hear him talk about the evolution of retail. And I threw out the Colin Johnson episode that I think we just released a couple of days ago, just talking about how retail is not just evolving. And it's really kind of fun, as you and I have been doing a lot of these interviews over the last sort of 16 months to follow the evolution of the narrative from just retail is dead to we may as well just convert them all to micro-fulfillment centers, to supply chain components. And now we're almost back to, no, 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 like aside from some of those legacy and closed malls and secondary and tertiary markets that may truly struggle in the long term, retail is back. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, right? I think there's still a lot of value in retail. And I think it's funny, he was talking about, you know, I don't know who was referencing analysts or, you know, whoever was saying, driving that narrative. I think as people, you know, again, let's date stamp it, I guess, it's July 26th, 2021, vaccines are keeping rising, the economy continues to open up, people are getting out, going around, going to shopping centers, going into retail facilities, eating inside restaurants and realizing, oh, wait a minute, like, I like doing this. I will continue to do this as long as COVID allows. Well, I think that, it might have been our, our third or fourth episode. We had uh, Yash Kumar of Leonard come on, and I'm sure it took us about seven minutes to get into that question of is retail dying? What does this mean? You know, that was 2016, and here we are five years later, and retail is just continuing to adapt and continuing to kind of defy the uh, some of, you know the more the more dire headlines. Five years from now in the podcast, we'll probably still be seeing some of the headlines, and people will still be making money at retail. That's the reality of it. And yeah, the Colin Johnson episode, you know, did cover that. Yes, there's pain in that sector, but it's localized to certain types of retail. It's not universal, and you know, people are still still benefiting from quality retail in a good location. They're far from dead, as uh, as so many predicted previously. 
He said they have 17 million square feet in their development pipeline. But I, Mind-boggling. I, I didn't capture. I think that's like total, like whether it's sort of land that's entitled and under or under construction, but 17 million square feet. And I mean, like you said, that's probably not much office because he kind of indicated they're not going to really grow that. So hold on, let me just grab my calculator. So presumably that is predominantly single family or multifamily or you know residential. What's the average unit? Let's just pretend it's all residential. Let's say it's twelve hundred well, square feet. Eight hundred square feet. Yeah, they're yeah, they want so people to have a little more room to move. I put twelve hundred square feet, and I mean, there's got to be a lot of retail <laughs> and mixed use there. So it's probably about ten thousand units. I'm, let's just be conservative, assuming out of that seventeen million, there's a couple million of retail and other purposes. So that's a lot of units. We probably should have asked that question as a follow-up rather than well, let's, just let's, let's complete the math. Guessing. If you're if are we doing uh, seventeen million square feet, take out square take, feet per yeah, well, take out four million square feet of retail and others. I don't know, right? Like, well, I, the math works almost perfectly because you know if you exclude sorry, if you don't exclude the commercial and other from the mix, twenty-one thousand two hundred fifty units. That's also assuming one hundred percent efficiency. But I mean, I know their long-term target. You know, the last time Jonathan came on the podcast, he talked about their goal is twenty thousand units in uh, you know in ten years. So the math kind of makes sense for the pipeline he's talking. Yeah, about. maybe that is. Yeah, and it's you know, if he were here, he'd say that's nearly not enough to battle our supply issues, right? With immigration growth and foreign students coming back, there is so much downward pressure on or upward pressure on demand. I should say. I can't remember what the number was. Remember, Wendy Waters said it was 100,000 units a year or something crazy like that just to battle the demand pressures that we've got. So they're doing 20,000. Are there 80,000 more out there? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> but it's pretty crazy what's going on in, in our environment right now. The problem he identified, of course, you know, he said you know, time is money, which is not a new concept, but developers feel that pain more than most. So it's not, of course, just the added expense of building it. It's the fact that these units aren't delivered. You know, It's not like, Immigration is going to sit around and wait for these units to be built. You know they're coming through the front door of the country every year, regardless, and uh, that's a long time to wait to get units. One thing I've never understood is a lot of municipalities will give you know development charge discounts or whatever kind of you know real cash out of pocket incentives to developers to build. When really, if they could just cut their entitlement process time in half or a third. You know, that is the equivalent of cash to a developer, but doesn't actually cost the city anything. That's the disconnect. I'm not a planner. I'm not a developer. So maybe there's some piece of that puzzle I'm missing, but that seems like such a no-brainer, partial solution to the problem, a way of gifting and incentivizing developers while not depleting city coffers. Well, I remember we had Marlon Bray on recently, and he was talking about every six months adds, should I wrote it down, but it's something like every six months of delay adds $4 per square foot in cost. And that's pre-development. And then I think once you're actually shoveling the ground, it's five bucks per square foot. So imagine, like you said, if it takes seven years or five years and you can make it a year, those four years saves 20 bucks, 30 bucks per square foot in cost, which is 10 to 12% of the cost of a standard sort of apartment building. So yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, not like we're going to solve the problem here, but yeah, like, yeah there's got to be ways. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here first. Yeah. yeah. The solution to our affordability <laughs> crisis in Canadian real estate. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good day's work if we yeah. have solved this. Maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up there. It's great to have Jonathan back on. We were joking around at the end, but I would love to see his fourth appearance on the podcast at some point uh, in the future. But for everybody who's stuck around uh, till the end to listen, thanks for uh, sharing your time with us. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. 
The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.